Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is C.K. Lin. Noble Warrior is where I interview consciousness-centered entrepreneurs about their journey from warrior to commander to king. We'll deconstruct the mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, so you can go take everything you learn and go on and build your business, your life with more impact and fulfillment. My next guest is the founder of Yoga of Guitar, the Yoga of Ukulele. He's a master musician and a master music teacher and a transformational guy with over 32 years of experience. We cover a lot of grounds in our conversation. We talked about the power of believing in yourself, your abilities and your path. We talked about a way to measure your progress in music. What is the atomic unit of practice? We talked about how music became a part of his development of inner inquiry and alignment of tuning and harmony. We talked about his earlier days when his perfectionism robbed the joy of music from him and accumulated into this complete burnout, physical, emotional, and mental, and how he actually found a way to put himself back together with music and to enjoy music and life again. And how music is a way to stabilize the inner architecture of the mind that we can build our life on. And how mysticism is the exploration of mystery and how music helps all of us explore the mystery of the universe. Please enjoy my conversation with Josh Brill. Thank you, CK. It's really good to be here. Thank you so much for being here, Josh. I'm so looking forward to having this conversation. And here's why I'm particularly interested in hearing your story. Now, in your other public appearances, you had said earlier that you weren't always a gifted music student. You weren't blessed with it. Mm -hmm. And then now you are a master teacher and a master uh, coach, a guide to help others to learn the musical skills. So I would love to hear just for, to set a context for any of you who is listening. Tell us a little bit of that journey from someone who had a calling for music, but who weren't so gifted with it. And then how did you become so such a masterful teacher? Yeah, the short answer is time and effort, 32 years of learning and, and, and practicing and, and learning and practicing. The longer answer would be something inside of the eight-year-old self knew it needed to do this thing. And even though I, I don't feel like I was naturally gifted as a musician, some people happen to have uh, an acuity or that sort of alignment developed. For me, it wasn't, but I had tenacity. There was something inside of me that knew I needed to do this thing. So I did it. And a couple, there's been a lot of blessings. It's interesting what gifted, being a gifted musician and all these words. I, I've noticed in my professional life and through this whole perspective, it ends up being the rarer of the case. And, and even the people who have been given gifts, they still have to work on developing technique and, and finding their craft and their art. But what I'm recognizing now is I was given a lot of gifts. It just, it wasn't the ones that I thought they were. Basically, I was given the gift of knowing I needed to do this and having tenacity. Mm. Uh, I had amazing teachers at every level of my progression. I had the perfect teacher for that moment or that period of time. Mm. My, my first teacher was really good at helping me find ways to engage with the instrument and find creative practices. It wasn't just learn this, but it, it was really, he was in tune with myself and I felt, and he, 
he was a good teacher. I, he was sometimes, especially in the musical world and the guitar world, you have guitar teachers by default. They, maybe they didn't make it or they're trying to make it as a professional musician. So this is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But maybe their heart's not into it or they don't even know how to teach. He mm-hmm. was a good teacher. He still is. He's still teaching. And then my next teacher was appropriate for that phase. And then after that, my next one. So I would say just looking back, it's been time. It's been having a proper, the proper guides along the way. And I always felt it was possible. So even when it was difficult or seemingly impossible, there was a part of me that knew there was a way to do this. If other people can do it, then I could, I can as well. And it was then became almost like a puzzle. What do I need to figure out inside? Okay. I'm not hearing that note or I'm, or my time is off or I'm struggling with this. Why is that? And how come that's happening? And I think that the inner inquiry uh, really was another gift along the way to get from very beginner to now, which it's an interesting journey. Yeah. So I'm particularly interested in speaking to you because the way you describe your younger self aptly describes someone like me, uh-huh. right? Who is interested in music, who is not particularly gifted and who's also super heady. Yeah. So I love your philosophy of your way of teaching, which we'll dive into it more later on. But Mm -hmm. I want to do a quick recap. For those of you who are listening, what Josh has beautifully articulated is, it to me, the map of learning anything. So we're going to do not just his story, but also the metacognition aspect of it, learning how to learn, right? This aspect. So that way you can take this on to learn a musical instrument, if you like, starting a business, if you like, and so on and so on. Yes. You said... Well, you said you were gifted with a vision, which is rare, by the way. You know, what the, you're very clear about your vision. And then you also had a belief in the path. If other people can do it, I could do it too. So it's a yes. learnable skill. It's not some intangible thing out there that you can never get to. And then, and then you were very strategic, very intentional about finding the right teacher, solving a particular problem. So you can step by step moving towards this vision that you have. Is that an accurate reflection of what you said? Yeah. Some of it was, a lot of it was blessings along the way of the teachers of being in the right, like I didn't find my first teacher like intentionally, but yeah, what you're saying. Yeah. I'm getting a little bit nitpicky on some of the words, but yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. So here's one thing I I would want to ask you is this, there's a different, there's, there's a number of different ways we can go about it, but here's the first question. Sometimes the vision is so big, so big, so grand that it feels like a weight and it, and it could easily become despair. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my skill dwarfs in comparison to this vision that I have. Yeah. How did you keep going and overcome this internal burden and then keep going anyway, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, in spite of, I'm sure, the initial days were really difficult. You didn't see results coming back. There's no positive feedback. There's no applause. Your teacher may even be a little bit harsh on you. So how did you overcome this internal barrier of no positive feedback during the initial days? Yeah. And it's interesting as you're asking that, like the different phases of, I think my progression of learning, that was a pretty constant. It, It, we always want more and it's hard to just accept where we're at. And it's actually a beautiful part of learning music is at every level of growth, 
you begin to be like, oh, but I want that. It's a little bit intoxicating and, and addicting. And it could be frustrating and overwhelming at the same point. And I, I feel like throughout the whole process, the, the navigating that is, is tricky and something to sort out. In my own experience, when I was a very beginner, I was eight. So I, I was blessed with a certain youthful naivete. And, and this was 88 as well. So pre-internet, maybe we had a VHS player, but there wasn't a whole lot of distractions in the world. We didn't have cable at the time. So I guess I didn't have a lot. I, there was no comparison at that point. I just knew I wanted to do it. and But it was hard. I, I do remember moments of not practicing, of course, as any beginner oftentimes ha- does, whether they're eight or 38 or 58. It, it's challenging at first. Like it's you are moving a boulder. And as you're saying, it takes some time until you get some momentum, some positive feedback, some feeling of success. I remember crying. My parents being like, if you're not going to practice, we're going to stop lessons. And and there was something inside of me that just knew I needed to do it. And it came out, I remember emotionally of just, no, I need, I don't stop. I really wanted to do it. I remember my first lesson and, and the teacher showed me two chords. He showed me a G chord with the played with just one finger and then a D chord, which is three fingers. And I remember going out home after the lesson and practicing the G with just this one finger on one string and I could do it. And I was like, wow, that's great. And then this D chord felt impossible. And I remember that. And I remember me, I don't think I had all the cognition at the time, but I remember, but I remember the experience of, I know this one is possible. So this other one must be possible at some point. And I just got to get there. But like at that point in my life, there wasn't a pressure about it. It was just, I guess it was just like a childhood curiosity and, and a magnetism to it. My teacher at that time, there was never any negative feedback. He was very supportive of, of the process. I'm sure if I didn't practice for a week and he knew it, there might be some, hey, what's up with that? Like checking in. But I, ne- I never felt like I was in trouble. There was always a sense of encouragement. I would say later on in my development, when I was 12, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. It became very clear that this yeah. is, it was just a knowing, okay, this is what I'm doing. On the professional level, you want to yeah. just- be a Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And there were times where I think in that development, especially maybe teenage years and 20s to some degree, where I did feel like I wasn't enough. In fact, I, I even saw a therapist for a little while because I, I was about 16 or 17 and I didn't feel like I was practicing enough. And I didn't know how to reconcile that because I wanted to practice more, but I didn't feel like it was enough. And it made me, I was confused by it and I was hard on myself around it. And part of it, because I did want to reach these next levels. And I think one of the beautiful aspects of music as a teacher is it will show you what level you're of capability you're able to work with it. If you're very honest, yeah, go ahead. So pause on that for for a moment sure. because in my mind, as a layman looking at musicians, music is so intangible. So it's hard for me to even grasp, oh, I'm level one versus two, yeah. four. It's not super scientific. It, but, right. but you, have, not- you have a perspective, uh, you, you, know, you can actually objectively measure the level of skills that you may have. Can you share that with us? Yeah, it's not like scientific in a very linear way per se, but how about this? If you ask your finger to do this and and this hand to do this, and either the note comes out or it doesn't. I see. And if it comes out, is it clear? 
If you, do, if you put three in a row, are you able to do that evenly? Are unintended notes happening along the way? So there's like music gives a, a feedback of your acuity mm. in that moment. Mm -hmm. Does it. that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you. That paints my, my skill, my musical skill of playing the ukulele right now very well. <laughs> my mind, it does something and my finger just wouldn't catch up yeah. to what, what I wanted to do for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So there was definitely really deep moments, especially having this pressure on myself of, I need to be this good. This is my thoughts right now to be able to do this thing that I know I need to do. And I would say there was sometimes that was the like fuel for improvement and practice. Oftentimes it not though. And, and I don't think I really realized that until later life somewhat recently that personally I tend to, I don't work well under stress mm -hmm. and pressure. And I had this cycle of putting pressure and stress on myself. And then I would be stressed and that I wasn't doing it. And I didn't really realize up until really recently that part of the reason I wasn't doing it was because I had this pressure on myself to do it. It's a music is a, a beautiful teacher. If you stay with it, it, it really reveals a lot. So let's, since you brought it up, let's just go there right away. The way yeah. I see our emotions or even our mental models, all of these is different types of fuel. So anger, resentment, you could use that as a motivational force, motivational fuel for sure, to show someone that, hey, you were wrong, I was right. Or coming from purpose or calling, something like that. Mm -hmm. So there are just different types of fuel. In my mind, using pressure or force or as a way, it's a very cheap fuel. And it does produce results initially. For some well, people. For some people. And for, for me, initially it produced a lot of results that would actually work. But then after a while, I also start to incur the cost of using this cheap fuel. Yeah. Right? The, it's like, oh my God, the whole journey is so miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and then and, 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 and the supposed joy and the destination is, is so fleeting too. Because in the beginning was maybe a few days of joy. And then, and then after that, it's a few hours and then a few minutes. And then, and then at, at some point it becomes like nanoseconds of joy. And, and then this, this pressure comes down again. Okay. Okay. What's next? So, yeah. so that's the way kind of I, I think about it in terms of using different ways to motivate myself. What do you think? Yeah. I think that cheap fuel becomes expensive in the long term. Yeah. One of the things that I've been learning as a teacher and also recently, like, I feel like the way I'm showing up to the education and guidance with people and music is the, I would say the device of deeper self-exploration. Personally, I'm less interested in showing somebody how to play a C chord versus helping people feel their hand from the inside out and understand their mind and like connect to themselves. So the music becomes a a part of that um, development of inner inquiry and alignment, tuning into harmony. And what I've been learning, we all have different fuels. And part of, I think, one of the detriments of traditional musical education and probably educational at large is it seems like pressure has been one of the primary fuels that's embedded in the system. And I don't know, I have a sense that most people learn better when they're in a, when their nervous system is relaxed, not tensed up. There are some that do seem to benefit the David Goggins type of character, the, like the freaks of the world, you know, <laughs> and we seem to maybe use those freaks. And I use that in a positive way, in an endearing way as maybe a template of how we ought to be or how we're striving for. 
But the outliers might just be outliers. And what might serve the rest of us mortals is actually finding a path that's helpful for us. And, and I personally found that a tense nervous system clogs the fuel pathways even. So whatever fuel might be available at the uh, emotional level, if we are in a locked up way place, it's not really going to support our, our progress or our ability to be in the moment with what we're doing, which music is 100% depends on. If we're not in the moment, it's not. So you're speaking to an audience of high performers, right? People yeah. who enjoy learning, people who like to you know see their life as an experimentation. They like to... Yeah you know, explore what's possible for themselves and also for their companies, for the community, for the planet and so forth. Yeah. So in that respect, perhaps being very, have a really high standard of themselves, yeah. it's very clean pipe. They, they can easily access those fuel of, hey, compare myself yeah. with Josh, compare myself with CK, compare myself with, why are you not there yet? It's, you know, that pipe to that type of fuel is very clean. It's very easily accessible uh -huh. so for someone like you, cause you had said the proclivity for you is to use that as well. How are you able to self-regulate? Oh, this I'm not, I'm choosing not to go down that route. I'm going to choose joy and relaxation instead, you know, well, it became a necessity for me. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I burned out at a certain point, like that, like any good hero's journey, the, the point of burnout happened where I had so much stress from that mental framework of striving for excellence all the time that quite literally every note I played had all of this pressure on it. So it robbed the joy of the experience and it, the stress accumulated into physical burnout. I had body issues, emotional burnout mental burnout, just complete burnout. So I had to reframe my relationship with music from that standpoint. And that's when I really began to explore using music as a means to create relaxation and centering within the self, which then made the experience a whole lot more enjoyable and also functional at that point. I suppose I'm not a person who like some people are very exuberant in their life and, and they just jump from one joy pod to the next joy pod. And, and that's what drives them. They're literally following their bliss. For whatever reason, my karma quite isn't that way. And I seem function seems to be a very important part of what I'm doing, like the understanding of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think when, it, when I was able to reframe and from the experiential level and necessity level of literally finding a way to use music to put myself back together in a way that I actually enjoyed music again and enjoyed life. It helped, you know, me with my depression and anxiety. And connecting to something deeper in, inside. So I guess speaking to the high performers, those who have the very clean pipes and the burning fuel, if, if the process is, is enjoyable and it feels fulfilling at every step, then that's probably they're, that they're probably doing the thing that's right for them. They're playing the right notes for their life. If it feels so stressful or pressureful that the striving is robbing the joy of the moment or the presence of the moment, then there's probably something to look at in that and, and maybe find a way to to reframe because if you, if your goal is a billion dollars and it takes you 90 years to get there and you're so focused on that, you've just spent those 90 years to reach that goal. And then now here you are a decrepit human. Maybe at that point you could invest into some T stem cells from a teenager or something. I don't know. I, 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 but the point is, is that our moments, our present moment, and I think this is where the mindfulness part really comes into play is our true currency. All we ever have is the present moment. We have had the past moments and that can be 
an asset to our present moment. Our past moments can be an investment. All those hours I've spent practicing is an investment into the capability to have access to music. And anything we're putting into is can be an investment. It could, we could also spend time, but we can invest it. And the future is unknown. We don't know how much of that is there. So all we really have in any moment is the moment. So then the question is, how much of the moment do we have? And what is our experience of that? And if we are sacrificing, sometimes we have to do the unpleasant things to get things done. And that's just like part of the process. When you're learning an instrument, it's not always going to be joyful or fulfilling, but the aspiration helps keep us through. But if it's always that, and there's never anything that, that comes from a deeper level of satisfaction, there's probably something uh, worth uh, evaluating at that point and, and checking in about. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I would also make it personal here. Yeah. The first time around is, is, is good. Okay, I got the results that I wanted. But after a few times of doing that, and then I saw a pattern, mm -hmm. uh, like, wow, this is a no-win formula. Because every time I do it, the more miserable the journey became, and then the more fleeting the joy of achievement yeah. became. So I was like, forget it. But I want to actually bring into more concrete terms because the meta framework, what you just share is beautiful. So for someone who is experiencing, you said, hey, to look into the journey, is it always miserable? So are mm -hmm. there indicators can, that kind of you can point to using your own experience as well as what are some of the baby steps in tactical ways that they can start to walk themselves, move themselves from the cheap fuel to the more clean fuel? Yeah, definitely there's indicators. So I think the analogy of just as, I don't think you see my guitar here, but there's a guitar here. Just as a string, we tune these strings and those strings are tuned to a specific frequency. That's objective in music. It's one of the places where music actually has objectivity. So if we use the analogy of literally our internal notes or our, our string of, let's say, truth, our soul, our conscious, con yeah, conscience, intuition. When we are out of a, out of tune from that, there's indicators, and and part of it is learning how to listen. Part of, and it's very specific, and and even doing this with music, I think, helps us listen internally. Here's two notes that are in tune together. If I detune this note a little bit, here's out of tune. And out of tune, the notes are clashing against each other. In tune, literally, the wave patterns come into a level of symmetry that we hear and feel. Until we've developed an, an uh, acuity to listening, not everybody hears that just off the bat. Most, I think most people, unless they truly have hearing issues, can be led to the awareness of hearing that and feeling that. And then they're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't feel so good. And then there's two directions of out of tune. There's flat and sharp. Mm -hmm. And flat feels a certain way. in tune feels a certain way and mm. sharp feels a certain way mm. when things are flat they're a little lower than where they ought to be and, and perhaps we could look at that as an indicator in, in, internally as depression basically or uh, loss of motivation loss of something sharp would be anxiety mm. a constriction this type of thing. So I think one, it, 
having a meditation or an internal practice that's self-guided, I think guided meditations are helpful, but at some point we need to learn how to do it ourselves internally so that we are literally making a contact into something inside of us with a more spacious mind, which gives us more acuity to listen to the internal notes, get a sense of, are we in tune? Are we out of tune? If we're out of tune, is it flat or sharp? Or sometimes both, because we're actually multiple notes. We have more than one string and listen to, and begin to find a level of learning how to calibrate that. And so like actual steps, if we are flat, obviously like we're, there's something that we're, the process is, is depleting us and obviously lifestyle choices, food, drinks, things that, that can diminish our energy, it, things that we're ingesting into our brain, podcasts, YouTube, things, TV, news, certain things can bring us into different notes, basically. Mm. Uh, and our work as well, our relationships at work, our relationship to the work. So I suppose if it's if we're in a depressed state, we need to find a way to perhaps reconnect to the the deeper purpose of what we're doing. Like that, that's just what's coming to me in, in this moment. If we are in a constricted or sharp place with it, obviously we need to find a way to create more expanse. Let me just do a quick recap. On what you said. So what you just said is start to pay attention and notice these, this internal resonance or dissonance. It'd be depressed state or anxiety state. And then, and then to start to basically unpack that more using a meditative practice or some kind of practice as a way to look at are to observe ourselves internally. And then from that place of, then you can experiment with different, say setting or peer group or music or diet or whatever the rituals may be, then you can, can start to take find some fine tuning of, of the, the dissonance or the resonance. Is that yeah. an accurate reflection? Yeah, I think so. Cool. Beautiful. Any other practices that Josh or uh, what you advise your students or the younger version of Josh to have? Yeah, I think the music practice when framed as this way actually becomes a way to tune into feeling deeper mm -hmm. and as a way to help stabilize the mind. And that's part of it too. It's a big part of it, really. We've got this thing that does a lot of different things <laughs> and thinks a lot of different thoughts. And most of them are habitual and they're generally directed in certain ways, oftentimes negative, I would say for many people in which I'm not just saying be in a blissful rainbow and unicorn state, but I think negative is a, a thought pattern that assumes things are not possible, not likely. Yeah. Things like that. Basically yeah, in, the, in the realm of impossibility versus in the realm of possibility. Yes. In the yeah. realm of contraction versus in the realm of expansion. Yeah. Said, yeah. So I think a big part of tuning is learning how to begin to stabilize the mind. And, and we don't learn this as a child or even as an adult. And then when people do try to sit down to meditate, it's challenging. And oftentimes people say, oh, I'm not good at it. I'm not like, even with music, it takes a practice. So I think speaking to my younger self or future self, even, or even current and recognizing that really music, a, a function of music and a very valid one is a means to begin to stabilize the mind, specifically our attention, and begin to regulate it. If that begins to set, now we have an interior architecture that's stable, that we really can begin to build something on. And I think, yeah, like, a, like in addition, for, 
my students, one of the, the beautiful feedback I've been really receiving is how much this is helping them feel calm using music as a meditation practice. So I think it's like reframing music from just a expression or creative pursuits that it really quite literally working with the notes, the sounds, the rhythms as a means of neural entrainment of syncing up our brainwaves with kinesthetic movement and auditory awareness as the bridge in between mm. is a deep medicine for life. I, I want to echo on what you just said. And then the image comes to mind is the bumpers around a bowling alley as an example, mm -hmm. right? Or transcendental meditation uses mantra as a way to guardrail the attention. Yeah. Anytime you veer off from your la la land, oh, you always have your mantra to go back to. Yeah. So similarly, I really like the fact that you use simple notes. And by the way, guys, I took Josh's course, a tremendous master teacher through and through. And one thing I really love about his course was he didn't go fancy right away because most teachers would go into teaching the songs or chords and all these things. And he does do that. But he taught us on a fundamental note level, singular note, single string, and then really feel into the note. And from that place, then it grounds us yeah. mentally, emotionally, physically, right? So maybe you can say a little bit more about your own philosophical uh, point of view around why focusing on something that most teachers don't even uh, teach, which is how you sit, how you hold, how you breathe, huh. and play the music. So why focus on that? Or what if I, is that what you're asking me? Yeah, maybe. Okay. There's a lot we can go there. Maybe you can yeah. start off start off by talking about the fourth way and then leading oh, to we'll, we'll go simple first. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then leading to the mechanics. Or you can do mechanics and then the philosophy. We whichever you like, Josh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Fourth way. It's the name of a system presented by a mystic of the 20th century named Gurdjieff, who there's the depth of it is way too much for a lifetime. Probably I'll let's go with what's relevant to the process. One of the things that Gurdjieff shared in was how we basically have different brain centers of our being. So not just the thinking brain, but that we also have a, a feeling or sensing brain, emotional center and moving center. So we could say thinking, feeling and moving as sort of three intelligences or awarenesses or attentions. We could think of those in that way. One of the things that Gurdjieff said is what part of why life is so hard for most people is the centers are disorganized. They're not in harmony with each other. So we tend to think about things that we should be feeling or sensing, or we are feeling or sensing something that we should be thinking about, or we're moving when we ought not to be moving, that the moving becomes a representation of thoughts or energy. Think about nervous movements, for example, somebody who's a fiddler or a twitcher. That's oftentimes actually thoughts triggering physical movements and a waste of energy, actually. So anyway, so Gurdjieff basically out of many aspects of it, let's say the, like this, these three things. So like the thinking, the feeling or sensing and the moving as three primary intelligences that are disorganized or we're not able to necessarily tune into most people or were in one more than the other. So music and specifically one of the 
the deep things that I continue to learn, but have learned from Robert Fripp in the Guitar Craft Guitar Circle work, which is not a direct lineage of the fourth way, but very much inspired, well, influenced in Robert's work with at the Sherborne House, which was put together by one of Gurdjieff's students, John G. Bennett, and, and led by his wife after Bennett passed, Elizabeth. Gert and Robert studied with there, and then the guitar circle, guitar craft world incorporates some of these themes, specifically thinking, feeling, and moving. So music in, like, is a means of connecting all those three things to develop the sense of greater attention or presence in what we're doing. If we think about it, our moving, we music is a movement practice. It, it, it's necessitated by kinesthetic movements. I'll speak specifically more about a physical instrument. Voice is, it gets a little bit, there's some more intricacies there, but let's just say specifically on a guitar or ukulele, your hands need to move. Now, are we moving our hands from our hands? We're we moving our hands from our thinking. Most people tend to learn how to do things from their thinking. Most people in a guitar session are taught to look at things. Looking is, is very much connected to thoughts. And then, okay, move your finger there, move your finger there, move your finger there, and play that. And oftentimes that doesn't work for a really long time. So if we are going to ask our body to do something, we probably should be in our body. Mm. So we probably ought to be present in our body mm. if we are going to move it and allow the body to move from the body standpoint. One of the reasons most people struggle with chords, besides they're difficult, their hand, they're not in their hands mm. or strumming a continuous rhythm. They're not in their hands, they're in their thoughts and it's not creating a flow. So basically getting present in the body, listening to the sound, which is connected to a feeling. Every note, when we really listen, it generates a feeling and not, not necessarily an emotional feeling, but more of a sensation. It's a better, it's actually a better way to say sensation in the body. Mm -hmm. If we really listen and a note comes in, we could feel it inside of us. So there's our feeling and, and different note combinations create different sound feels is what I call them. Just as an example, minor feels sadder or darker where major feels something else. We, we're hearing it, we're listening to it, but we actually sense the emotional quality of the sound or the colors of the sound through our feeling or emotional center. And then our thinking, which oftentimes is really busy and disrupted, needs to begin to hone in, just like what you said with TM, with a mantra. Having a, a process of operation that we're going to do, let's say we're going to play a single note. So we are in our hand, we are in our body, we're present first because that's necessary. And then we play the note and then we listen as deep as possible. When our attention is based on the listening, there's not much room for thought. It's just like a mantra. It's it, that's so, at, In that context, there really is. And if we notice our thoughts going away, we notice that because we tuned out to the sound. So the sound keeps on bringing us back internally. And then what ends up happening is there's a calibration of the internalization of sound that is related to our process of externalizing sound. What, what, what I say, oftentimes when we're learning something, and this goes way beyond music, we, we're very much in the doing. There's an excitement in the beginning of the process. We just want to play. Our hands are moving. We don't even know they're moving. And that doesn't oftentimes yield harmony. <laughs> mm. you know. But if we actually begin by receiving, 
then the note that we receive is going to create us to play another note, basically. So it's, we almost have to go in resistance to that this in, impulse of doing into first being in a receptive state. So this process is basically, which is definitely influenced by the fourth way and my own experiences, is a way of beginning to calibrate our external attention and our internal attention and beginning to balance them that part of our attention is on the inside of our body and part of it is external in the, in the case of sound, for example. And, we, and the process of playing a note becomes a biofeedback that we, our body then begins to move in a way that we want the sound to sound. Mm. So if the sound is very sharp and disruptive, we begin to notice that and we say, okay, obviously I need to make a, a change in my body. And then the body's intelligence begins to move forward. And then that creates a harmony of those three attentions that we talked talk about, the thinking, the feeling, sensing, and the moving. Yeah, I really appreciate what you just said, because as you're speaking, reflect on my own ukulele learning journey as well. Huh? And as someone who is like a, a life hacker, a yeah. student who loves to learn, and my whole thing, my whole mind is wired to say faster is better. So therefore, when I learned the different course or, or the movement, my thought is, how do I get to be as fast as Josh or Jay Shukamayakuro? <laughs> so I'm trying to learn the patterns as quickly as possible and actually forgetting the physical sensations, each sound chord has in a body. So then, so it's a negative spiral because now I'm like, it's not getting me the result I'm looking for. Let me go even faster. What you just shared is actually did a whole reframe. It's actually more important for me to internalize the physical sensation. Each note, each chord yeah. has on me deepening that. And from that place of uh, embodiment, then move on to the next note, the next movement, so on, so on. So Definitely. I'm glad you brought that up because and we've spoken about this, you and I before, I think, and also in the classes, but it's the, the misinterpretation of faster and sooner. And, and I think differentiating between those things. We generally want things sooner. We want to be able to play something now, soon. So there's this thing, if we do it fast enough, we'll get to that place sooner. Oftentimes the faster actually makes sooner later mm. and the slower makes sooner, sooner because say we're more about say more about that. Say, say more specifically about that. Yeah. Let's say you want to, you build the car so that you can drive hundred miles an hour. So you want to do that today. And so you put it all together, you're missing bolts. The wheels are not aligned and, and the whole thing is, is gnarly. And you get in and you start driving and it's wobbling all over the place. And maybe you don't even get past 10 miles an hour until wheels fall off or you hit a tree or, but if you said, okay, in 10 weeks, I'm going to take time to really make sure everything is there. Then perhaps you'll actually build this car that will get you to hundred miles an hour. But if every day you keep on rebuilding the same clunky ass thing. It's that's the driving that you'll, you'll never really get there. And most people will give up because of that. A lot of it is working with slow cooking and it's hard for people because our, we want things now and who doesn't, who doesn't want to be a master in, in the right away. It's just that the, and part of the reason why, why I work so much with helping people find their internal tempo and beginning to slow it down internally using music is because that actually develops a larger experience of the present moment 
which there's more patience found in that. There's less patience found in the contracted moments. And when our moment is so contracted, which we actually create by speeding up our brain and our nervous system, then we're inherently less patient and we inherently tend to do the wrong things to actually get the thing or, or the less like the things that make it less likely to happen is a better reframe versus then really expanding out. And if you had a well of water and you had to empty it one drop at a time, it's a daunting task. But we know logically the only way to do it is just by doing it one drop at a time. No, there are just aren't any buckets. There's, and you could spend a year devising a, a way of doing it faster, perhaps. Oh, if only we had this and this and that. But meanwhile, maybe the person who is just going one drop at a time actually gets the thing done. So I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah, it, it really does. The only way to get better is by playing. And there's no really shortcut. But so well, in my mind, I'm conflicted because I, I yeah. want to ask you, and they 100% agree with you, in order to be better at any kind of craft, any kind of mastery, the path to mastery is practice. Yes. However, so here's yeah. the, the second well, part. Well, there is howevers. Yeah. So then, however, there are also knowing why now as a master of your craft, uh, of teaching, of guitar, of uh, mysticism, there's also 80-20 principles, mm -hmm. right? What is the 20 atomic unit skills, fundamental skills to master to make the path a little bit yeah. simpler, a little bit easier? Totally. So I would say, I would agree that there are no shortcuts. There are definitely long cuts. So if we can mitigate the long cuts, then maybe we have something that approximates a shortcut. The 80-20 the, 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 is internal alignment, really. So mm -hmm. if you are trying to move your hands, left and right even, and you're not in your hands, they're not going to sync up because we're trying to use our head. So quite literally, the internal alignment as the primary thing to learn then opens up the path in a much greater way because we're, our pipes are clean to use the, the callback to the reference. A clear mind or a focused mind, which is hard. So we use the practices to actually learn that thing. If we are practicing eight hours a day, but the mind is distracting, distracted, mm -hmm. or we're outside of our capability, so we're just hitting this rather than, which oftentimes comes from a more of an egoic, striving, then that's a lot of energy expended. You're just like another callback, cheap fuel becomes expensive in the long term. So basically investing in the development of internal awareness and alignment and connected to the sound auditory listening, all the things that, you know, like that I've been sharing and especially in the courses or my one-on-one -on -one sessions mm -hmm. end up creating the inner architecture for music to come through basically. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and so it's basically, it's how you're practicing even more than what or how much. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm seeing amazing results and, and it's really not to sound immodest because I, I like, as I'm continuing to develop this way of teaching, I feel like a student as well. Like in, in it, it feels like I'm on a path of discovery and it's not about me. It's like discovering a process. I have some students who aren't pra who haven't practiced that much on a daily basis or weekly basis. Weeks will go by. Meet there's one in particular, and she'll be like, "Yeah, I didn't actually touch my guitar this week." Now, when I was 17 and teaching, I would have busted her balls about it. Now my approach is okay. Here we are, new now. Mm -hmm. Let's not be in a shame story around it. Let's not feel bad about what didn't happen the past week. Mm -hmm. Let's engage right now, and. 
her breakthroughs lately, it's been mind blowing. It's just beginning to connect for her and she's stuck with it. So she played the long game. She wasn't practicing hours a day or even daily, but by continuing to work on the inner attention and clearing all that like negative self response around it, it's happening. And the music begins to take over. And then that's really the special gift. That's what I've learned is the music begins to teach you. And when that happens, then it becomes exciting mm. because then these things begin to open up and then you want to learn more. There, there, there's that like really positive feedback that you get from the experience of flow and making sounds that sound good to you and, and having the accomplishment of breaking through some of those levels. There's no shortcuts. There's definitely long cuts. If, if we were to break it into really simple things, concepts, and, and I'm still learning about all of this as well, but internal alignment, which is necessitated on understanding attention, that's just necessary. If that's not there, it's, you have a clunky ass car and it's not, and that might be enough for some people, the drunk bar band and they're playing like, and they're having fun. And Hey, like personally, I'm just interested in something a little deeper, look at it in a disparaging way, but attention and engagement and they're connected with each other. If you just continue to engage with the process and continue to develop the internal awarenesses and the attention and work within a tempo that makes things functional rather than outside of the functionality. If you are trying to do something faster than you're able, you're hitting a wall and it just does not feel good. So mm. if you continue to work with something that feels nurturing, if the music is even relaxing your nervous system at, at the same time and teaching you how to do it internally, then you're going to have a much more open space to engage with the process. And over time, all of that alignment and investment, time investment, Mm. begins to accrue and give returns basically and then it becomes compound interest at that point yeah i you said so many beautiful things from principles <laughs> guys definitely go back and listen to what josh is trying to communicate so I'll do yeah, one. me too i think <laughs> and what you just what you said is brilliant there's a lot of layer principles in there but what actually reminds me is a beautiful quote i came across recently by my spiritual teacher he said struggle is effort laced with negative emotion. Struggle is effort laced with negative emotion. And in, in, in what you're saying is removing the negative emotions. Don't put yourself in the negative emotion state. Yeah. It actually has a much better efficiency. Yes. Yes. And, and actually without amplifying any negative emotions as you practice and learn, and then just and that would empower you to, to continue to do the work and have better throughput in the end versus, versus having that negative emotion, struggling through it, and at the same time, internalize that during the learning process. And then eventually the throughput has that negative emotions all blended in there. So yes. it's a much cleaner throughput when you just don't put yourself in a negative emotional state. Is that an accurate reflection? hundred percent. And, and to even deepen at one level, when we're in a learning, when, when we're in a learning mindset, we're really becoming like a sponge. Something changes. I don't know what's happening at the neurological level, but, but it's almost like the intention of learning opens up receptivity. So if we are learning while stressed or learning while feeling negative, we're learning that as well. And they're getting welded together internally. So it's almost like when we're in the learning state, it actually is at the utmost important not to have any stress or negative emotions 
because we're going to absorb those things more likely because we're in that like open receptive state. And conversely, if we are learning from that, if truly from a relaxed nervous system, a positive mindset, open up to possibility as we're learning with every note, we're wiring that with the experience. So it's, it begins to like really build upon itself at that point. Yeah. Bring the neural network idea. What you practice regularly essentially reinforces your neural network yes. concept. Yeah. So, so by having a positive relationship with during the learning process, you're actually driving in, Hey, this is a joyful experience. I can do this and, yeah. and I'm getting better at it versus, oh my God, this is so hard. Or I'm a terrible at this. Yes. Uh, so gifted with Josh, like I'm not reinforcing that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah that's yeah. beautiful. A lot of different places we can go from here. We can geek out a little, a little bit more on learning. Is there anything else around learning how to learn? Hmm. So, Put yourself in internal alignment, giving your best attention and then yeah. engage with the process and then doing it regularly. And then that will have a compound effect yeah. of your learning experience. Anything else that you wanted to share around the learning process? Yeah, I'm sure there is. It's it's my mind is going a couple of different places. Like I'm flashing into yeah, you open a lot of different loops so we can go a lot of different directions. Anywhere your highest intention will, will take you. Yeah, I think, yeah, a couple of things. Learning, and this obviously is so obvious, but it's a process. And we will say those words a lot. But I think when we're in the experience of learning, we forget that. And we are trying to get from A to B which oftentimes makes B further away rather than being in the learning. Like just a, as a quick analogy in, in recent classes that I've taught, I'll present something and, and every week th there's something a little bit stretching the, the capabilities a bit gently. And somebody might pop in from the zoo and be like, my fingers, it's not working right now. Like, it. and my response will be, oh, so after 10 seconds of trying, it's not working. There must be something wrong with your hands. There's oftentimes the assumption if we don't get something right away, there's something wrong with us versus really getting into this idea of this is a, an act of discovery and it takes time. This might be a little bit redundant, but, but I think just really helping people to tune into that mindset as a foundation and continuing to remind oneself about that. Another thing that I've been learning about learning is how important compassion is, how important it is for somebody to hold space in a compassionate way for somebody. Because we oftentimes will go into a self-degregation. There's something wrong with me. I can't do this. And then it brings up stories and somebody to really hold a compassionate and loving space and, and be hold, hold the hand gently. And, and hey, like uh, I use this analogy when I'm teaching. When a baby takes its first steps, it falls after a step or two or grabs onto the thing. The natural reaction from a loving parent is celebration for the steps not what's wrong with you. You can't walk yet. How come you can't run? Oh, you fell. You must be bad at walking. You're you know, such a loser for falling. Pardon? So you're such a loser for falling. Right. All those things. But we do that to <laughs> ourselves in the learning process. Yeah. And that closes off the, the openness where learning really happens. So mindset, like really like compassionate mindset and helping people install that program in, in themselves. And this is something I had to learn the hard way. That's been part of my long path to mitigate it from others. I 
practice with so much pressure and so much self-beratement that it got the best of me. Obviously, now I look at it as part of what I needed to learn along my process, mm -hmm. but I don't think everybody needs to learn that the hard way. Yeah. In fact, I think there'd be a lot more joy in music metaphorically and music literally in the world. Yeah. We incorporated this in our learning, whatever the learning is. Yeah. So let's actually talk about teachers, the importance of having the right teacher. Because yeah. you had briefly mentioned about a space of compassion. I remember yeah. a time where I finally was curious enough about music and have the courage to actually start to play the drum or whatever. And I was being around someone who was technically very good, but she would just basically beat me up for not being perfect. <laughs> that basically doused my enthusiasm, curiosity, and just even in any kind of positive emotions around music. And I got, fuck it. You, yeah. you do your thing. Thank you. I, I'm going to. So it wasn't until, honestly, until I came across, because I was looking for a teacher and who actually not just have the technicality aspect of it, but also the mindset. And also someone who can have that space of compassion and teach the mentality of the, the metacognition aspect of it. Yeah. A la you. So I so appreciate the fact that you uh, allow me to, hey, this isn't technical. It is, but it's not. It starts off with your fundamental relationship with sound. Yeah. And pay attention to how you hold it, how you breathe, and all that stuff. So thank you. Anything else you want to say about finding the right teacher? What makes a great teacher? What makes a terrible teacher? Go ahead. Yeah, the easy questions. I, I love it. And, and I just want to say, I'm really enjoying this conversation. So uh, thank you. You know, thank you for, for the invitation. What makes a great teacher? I, just some of the things that come to mind, obviously patience, encouragement. People oftentimes will, will comment on how patient I am in my sessions. I'll actually, when I began teaching like a lot, when I was 16, I was teaching about 40 people a week privately. One of the things I loved about it is I had all of this patience. And I was not a patient 16-year-old boy, like most aren't. But well, so a quick introduction. So yeah. you yourself weren't patient, but you had infinite patience for your students. Yeah. Say a little bit more about that. Because again, making it personal, I'm, as you probably experienced me already, not very patient by nature. So I don't know, say a little but, bit more uh, about the, 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 the dichotomy of the two. Yeah, just as a reflection, I never I never experienced you impatient. I, I ex experienced you enthusiastic about accumulating what you're doing, which I think is a different experience. It was remarkable on reflection. I, I didn't understand it at the time. I knew it just felt good. I knew it felt good that I entered this practice room with somebody. And not to say I was a saint or a perfect person at the time, <laughs> but I had, but there was this patience that became available. It's like superpower. And it felt good for me to be in that state. And it's something that I guess encouraged me to teach more. So I think patience is a really important thing. And I think patience happens naturally. It's not something that I have to try to do with somebody like when we're learning, it's the natural outcome of compassion. I feel I, when I'm in a lesson with somebody, I want them to do well. I don't have an expectation of them doing well per se right away or learning the thing. Oftentimes people will apologize when they make a mistake. And, and I bring that up like, why are you apologizing to me? Like, you're not letting me down. Like we're in the process of learning. So I think compassion, patience is the outcome of compassion. Mm. And, and also the regulated nervous state, the nervous system. If my nervous system is off, if I drink eight cups of coffee and a couple of Adderall, like, <laughs> like my moments then become so compressed 
that chances are, it, because my tempo has changed. Patience yeah. is directly connected to the tempo. The more spacious I am, the more I have space to hold. So what makes a great teacher? I think compassion and then the natural outcome of patience. Acuity to figure out what that person needs in that moment. I, do, I don't think there's a systematic approach for everybody. I think there's principles that we can use, but we all need different medicine and different things. So I think having the ability to assess almost like a psychotherapist in a way of what, where are blind spots and how to offer the things that help the person do that. I've been learning a lot, giving them space to learn and experience. So what makes a great teacher? That as well. Like leading the student to an experience, but not giving it to them. Mm. Teaching, like guiding them to discover it for themselves. Sure, I could tell you where all those notes are, but I want you to find them. And if you make a mistake, I might not tell you right away to see if you recognize it yourself. And now, if you made that mistake two or three times, then maybe it's time to bring it to your attention. Mm. But I'd rather have you recognize it on your behalf, because that's how development truly becomes. So I think leading and guiding the student to an experience, obviously positive support and is super important. And I think not everybody is meant to teach also. I, I think everybody could probably develop their teaching ability. And maybe that's segueing into what makes a, a not great teacher in a, in a sense would probably be the opposite of all those types of things. I, there's an interesting moment I think that's happening with our culture. And it's something I saw some years ago that would, that that I saw as a trend and now it's beginning to happen, which is so many people are out there teaching things, especially in the entrepreneurial space and the coaching world. And all of a sudden, everybody's a teacher. These Facebook posts that so many people make, it's, it, it feels preachy, teachy, like coachy type of type of thing. And a lot of it feels, <laughs> feels pretty cookie cutter and just replicas of a thing that other people have done. I think there's, and I feel passionate about that if we all have something to offer each other. And I think teaching, whether it's at a financial level or just a, an exchange of giving a positive benefit to humanity mm -hmm. is one of the most beautiful things, if not the most beautiful thing that there is. Because if you could help somebody learn something, especially something that's relevant and useful, you're empowering them to such a degree. It, it changes lives depending on what they're learning, really. So many people are taking the teaching position, but I don't know if if it's always coming from a higher mission or if that it's almost like teaching becomes a means to an, to an end for them. I've, I'm seeing this a lot in the coaching world, like so many coaching programs I'm seeing and in the testimonials, I made this much money in a month. I acquired 12 clients in a month. And it seems like all these programs or many of them are about acquiring clients or money and not, well, are you really, are you truly serving people though? Are you, in check with yourself, with your patience, with your compassion, with your true motivations, and to really be in a supportive role, basically. I think a really great teacher is a guide that I've been somewhere. And here, I'm going to show you how to get there. But you may need to get there in a way different way than I got there. So I'm going to be attuned to what you need in that path. Like I had a, a teacher in um, college who was a real hard ass, and I sought him out. He he, he was a ball buster and I wanted that. I also, at the you same time, you I were did, looking for a ball, bu you know, busting session with your. Yeah, for sure. Because my aspirations were very high level and I wanted somebody who was just going to really go in and find those things. For me, music at that time served a different function than, than what I'm offering right now for people. Mm -hmm. Like I was 
it was my life depended on it. So I was looking to be as amazing as possible. And yeah, and sometimes his ball busting helped and sometimes it didn't, quite honestly. And, and I, I had enough in, like self-esteem where I, it, I always understood it as uh, something that was supportive, but I sought it out. I think then that's the most important thing. And I'll say this, when I graduated from college and I began teaching college, literally right after I graduated, I took on that ball busting approach for a number of students and it didn't work out well. And it was at the time. Pardon? It wasn't what they needed. At the it wasn't time. what they needed. And, and I was approaching them in a, with a way that I just thought was, this is how you learn. And this is what you need. And oh, you need to learn all this shit in a week. And if you don't, then I'm going to bust your ass about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, actually I had a, I was showing some student some more difficult chord voicings that take a certain level of, you know, dexterity in the hand developed. This is at the college level and just these different, like really more elaborate fingers. And his hand got a little hurt. I, I do, not severely, but I think he was stretching too hard. Mm-hmm. And when another teacher told me that, he's like, yeah, he kind of, his hands, and it was this teacher, somebody who I really respected, actually a mentor of mine, who mm-hmm. was basically saying, hey, dude, I think you're going about this a little bit. Show out. Yeah. But that was a moment of humility for me and checking my own thing of, oh, okay, like I need to be more in tune with the process. So I think what, I don't know how much makes a bad teacher. Okay. I'll give one example of a bad teacher I've had. I think I can look at one in particular. Hold on. Be- before you go to the bad teacher part, let me yeah. do a recap of what you said. Sure. So that would give you a little break as well as uh, for, for people who are listening the quality, the attributes of a good teacher. Okay. So what you said, desire for them to do well. Yeah. At the same time, don't expect them to do well. Very different. Or expect and, them to make instant progress. How about that? Like, yes, have that burden of, hey, you should blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Intention for them to do well, but don't have the expectation per se. Yeah. And then self regulate your nervous system. So that way you yeah. come from a place, uh, space versus having 10 Adderalls and speed up your internal clock. Have enough acuity, sensibility to meet them where they're at know what they need and then from your tool belt and give it to them what they need they may need a little bit of a tough love they may need some encouragement right so depending on what they need give them that oh nudge them but don't give them what they need don't necessarily point out and just listen for hey if there's a pattern then you give it to them but not right away give them exactly what they need at the time and also give them lots of positive support per se yeah So some follow-up question there before you go to the bad teacher part. Yeah, for sure. Some people believe, especially the high performers listening, Uh a positive support, it makes people soft. And I'm just saying, this is not my point of view. One person particularly comes to mind. Uh No positive support. What's your take on that? If that's what that person needs, then that's what, if that what makes them function and, and feel good, then sure. I would say the majority do really well with positive support. Okay, cool. I, I agree 100%. It's one of those, it's what people may or may not need at the time. Yeah. All right, beautiful. Let's move to the not so good teachers, the bad teachers, the terrible teachers that you still remember even today. It made an impression on you. What are some of the qualities and the attributes that you remember? Yeah. And, and really, thankfully, I, I could only think of I can only think of one that really stands out. Like I, I, if I racked my brain, I could probably think of a handful of mediocre teachers, but I really do feel blessed that, that I've had good teachers along the way. Yeah. 
One teacher, so I'm in college, and she taught a voice class for instrumentalists. And this is at Berkeley in Boston. So basically, this class was, as it sounds, it, it was a vocal class for people who were not singers. And she had, was just not a very happy person. Now, I've had other teachers who aren't happy, and myself included. But I think there's sometimes the unhappiness can come out. And I think for her, part of it was the unhappy. This is my own projection or sense of it. She wasn't happy with her position in life or in the class. Uh, I'll say this. If, if you're teaching a voice class for, for instrumentalists, you're not one of the top voice teachers at the school. <laughs> cool. I like it. You probably should have the top vocal teacher at the school teach that class. That would actually make the most sense. Mm -hmm. But just in the way of the bureaucracy of the school that, that I went to, the top mm -hmm. teachers taught the top students. Yeah. And as a guitar teacher, I was blessed enough to study with the top teachers. So I had that experience of really working with the higher echelon teachers. So anyway, so I'm in this class and yeah, she criticized other singers called Sting Stink, for example. And to me that it just like, that's pretty much even all I need to say was why? Like, why not recognize greatness rather than put down? Not to mention, if you're teaching a voice class for instrumentalists at a college and you're putting down somebody who's a world-class artist, maybe you should check that. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's it's more of a reflection on, on her bitterness than, yes. than on Sting. A hundred percent. All of it was a reflection on her. Yeah. I remember she, say, she told me specifically... I think she even said, I don't think I made this up, but she said, I like you, Josh. And sometimes I really hate you. And because I challenged her in class, I challenged her and she didn't like it. She told me, and this probably makes her a great teacher, but in like in an inverse type of way. Anti-example. Yeah. Yeah. She told me, because I, I had a lower singing voice and now I'll say this to her benefit. She was right to help to encourage me to develop a higher, my higher register. I would agree with that now. At that time, I was more into stylized music. I wasn't you know, like, so in my lower voice, I was into Tom Waits, Frank Zappa, like singers who had lower voices, Leonard Cohen. And she told me something of the fact that almost to verbatim, I, this is some years back, but basically it's, oh God, let me see if I can remember it exactly. Something about like, you need to do what's right and what's right is what most people like. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. In, in my, thankfully I, I, I was like wise enough at that age to be like, oh wow, this person knows nothing about what people like. <laughs> you know, because first of all, like all of the artists that I love were not mainstream. So I suppose in this in particular case, her own blind spot, blots, her own blind spots leading the way she taught may is making her a bad teacher so i suppose and thankfully i don't have that much reference to what bad teachers are but i think if blind spots are leading if there's an insensitivity to the student if there's if there's degradation if if there's you know and oftentimes that's coming from their own egoic blind spots it's making a bad teacher and i don't know how much more is it's probably better just to focus on what makes a good one but yeah yeah one thing so number one i really so appreciate embodying a great teacher and that's why I chose you as my ukulele teacher. It's mm -hmm. something that I don't ever foresee myself doing it professionally. It's, yeah. it's more of an exploration of 
this awareness that you spoke of, this embodiment that you spoke of, this this relationship with sound that you spoke of. So, so thank you for embodying that. I, I appreciate <laughs> sure. it. Yeah. So let's actually talk a little bit more around. Let's see. There's a lot of different things. I want to actually ask you one one specific thing. This may be a segue to more of our overarching philosophy. Uh, you had talked publicly about how you your journey of deepening your own craft as a musician with ayahuasca as an example. Mm -hmm. So we'll touch on just a learning aspect of it yeah. before we go into more ceremonial and all this, the symbolism that goes with that. So talk about how using ayahuasca as a way to help deepening your relationship with sound with your instrument just a bit before we segue to another topic. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, so for those who don't, aren't aware of what ayahuasca is, right, it, it's a shamanistic tea that it comes from the Amazon jungle that's a blend of, of DMT, basically, which is a molecule that is is inside of our body. And I don't know if it's, it's scientifically proven, but there is suspicion to say that it's released when we dream and when we die and when we're born. So it's a, a psychedelic experience that comes from plants and is gaining a lot of both anecdotal and scientific proof evidence of being very medicinal for certain people at certain times in their life. And they found that it can heal or at least assist in diminishing depression, trauma, addiction, just a different, but to educate for a moment, to differentiate it from a drug that has a certain connotation. It is uh, a healing plant, or at least it can be. Everything can also have it, its negative uh, effects as well. And it came into my life specifically that I, to, I guess I incorporated it in my life to help work with my own personal depression. And, uh, and that moved also into playing music for ayahuasca ceremonies and music is in sound is a very much a big part of, of the ceremony. So for those who might not have had any psychedelic experience, one of the things about psychedelics is, is senses can seem to open basically. So colors can be more, can be uh, experienced brighter sounds, deeper, more acute touch feeling that can increase that, which can be a lot for people, which I think is also why, why I don't have a, a, a sort of a blanket. Yes. Go do, you know, ayahuasca or eat mushrooms or all, all these types of things, because it's not for everybody. And it's definitely something that whatever about what, that. Before we move on, yeah. one quick, so we do talk about ayahuasca quite a lot on this podcast. Okay. Thank you for that education and a little primer. Yeah. The way I share that on the podcast is think of it as a catalyst. It actually amplifies where you already are. So imagine the fuel tank, the fuel that you have, you have you in different fuel tanks, it actually amplify even more. If you intend to use anger or resentment, that gets amplified during the experience as well. For the people who may not have a stable fuel tanks, this yeah. probably is not for them, but for those who are pretty fit physically, emotionally, right, spiritually and mentally. And this is something that it's a great experience, catalytic experience to go through. So yeah, it can be for some even people who are stabilized, they might be good in their stability. And they might not need to like, but yes, right. yeah, yeah, moving on. So my experience of it with sound and music, and there's something about that plant in particular and, and the experience of being with it that sure seems connected to sound and, and music. And, and my personal experience, it helped me, it helped me hear sound better in a way and, and hear it in a deeper way. 
And in playing for ceremonies or during ceremonies, it's a beautiful challenge because I'm also in that time, I'm also um, drinking the medicine. So I'm, I'm under the experience. I'm with the experience, which can make certain things more difficult. So there was this internal challenge of perhaps like walking on a tightrope over a mountain and, and that it made it a little bit more difficult, but that difficulty also helped me stay focused and centered in a way that actually worked out an internal muscle. And, and then at some point it just becomes aligned. So it, it was a really beautiful experience. One, to use music as a means of service in that role, uh, to play for play certain sounds and songs that I felt people needed in that room to support their journey. For many people, the experience can be very intense. You know, I know you've talked about it before, but if somebody isn't familiar with it, mostly they assume, they they say, oh, is that the thing that you throw up on? Yeah. And some people do, many do. And it can be uncomfortable in the body and it can you can encounter difficult things. So using music as a means to nurture and move energy, those experiences taught me deeper how that works, how what how different notes and, and scales and things interact with the moments. I, I feel like I began that exploration playing music for yoga classes. And then in the more uh, ritual ceremonial standpoint with specifically with ayahuasca, it elucidated that deeper in a way. Mm. So there was both my internal connection to sound and finding the channel and basically a beautiful thing. I learned a lot. I learned when I played a song in a ceremony that felt like, oh, I want to play this now from more of the doing. Oftentimes it just wouldn't feel right for the room. Mm. When I learned to listen to the room and just get a sense of what came through, magic oftentimes happens. So I think it taught, it taught me how to listen deeper to what really feels like, what is the music of the moment versus what, what do I want to play and mm. allow the expression to that. It also helped me come into deeper connection with my voice. And as a singer, it, 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 you I, sing I, in ceremony while yeah. you play. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And there's something again that in my own experience about that specific medicine, like because I've had difficulty singing in, in my life. It's actually been a, a, a pain point in my musical existence mm. that I could hear my voice and feel it better than normal. And that allowed me to be yeah. in more acuity with pitch and control. Like it, it, And the best that I could say, I, I would love to know what happens at the neurological level, that what it's catalyzing. But it sure seems to enhance an internal connection to sound awareness that feels aligned and perhaps uh, just a couple of my own sense, especially with studying Dr. Tomatis, which gets into a whole other podcast probably. But one of the things that he developed something called the, the Tomatis method, which was a way to train the ear and quite literally the, the muscles within the ear to hear certain frequencies. He recognized that people who have certain things, difficulty hearing or singing, that it actually is an inner ear muscle that hasn't been developed. And as well as that they're not listening in an ear dominant way because wow. yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole, you, you just blew my mind. I didn't know that was possible until you just mentioned it. it. It's really profound work. And it's actually something that I feel has been underutilized in society. If we didn't know people needed glasses or did or glasses existed, that there's actually like a mechanism within the ear and that the ear needs to learn how to listen. And part of it is these muscles. And also part of it is being right ear dominant, that oftentimes people who have pitch recognition difficulty mm. can have this inner ear muscle is not quite developed, as well as not a defined right ear dominant listening ear. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, that in my own personal experience with Aya, I would really feel both hemispheres of my brain zero in into a center point, in, which is where I experienced the sound and the voice. Mm-hmm. And when I was aligned in the tune with that, it sure felt a whole lot easier to sing. And, and it, so it put me in touch with I think a deeper internal experience of sound and music would be the shortest answer. So let me just make a com- make a comment, and I'll, I'll I'll drill in more on the specific sounds. I don't have the research to back it up right now. I'll do my best to find it in the show notes. That our default network gets turned down, hmm. a lot of filters gets turned down, so that allows us to have more uh, a cleaner pipe, shall we say? You know, uh-huh. The filters turn off, so that way we can experience things more, experience our internal states and emotions, our thoughts, and that's also a possible, possibly why we experience synesthesia more during ceremonies, ceremonies like that as well. Yeah, yeah. So on the learning part of it, so we experience this. Well, number one, let me just make a comment. Um, Please. So impressed of the musicians <laughs> that can do really intricate movements and and with their voice during ceremony. Imagine, for those of you who haven't experienced something like this, imagine you just had a really difficult workout, right? That level of internal intensity, you're out of breath, you're trying to like hold yourself together, like that internal intensity. So now imagine now somebody gives you a guitar to, or or ask you to sing in with that intensity in mind. That's in my mind, what I envision to be a, a, a ceremonial instrumentalist while you're on the medicine. Is that an accurate part analogy? Yeah, yeah, something like that. I, I think it, it necessitates a, a, a development of internal management, yeah, of energy and all that, and even maybe how to channel it with it. I, there's a if I didn't have the level of technical acuity already developed, it, I think it'd be much more difficult. Yeah, I have. I do have the benefit of coming in with X amount of years of development in the hands, so even it might make it a little bit more challenging in a certain degree. But I can trust my hands to get there, basically. So I'm, I'm not having to figure things out while I'm doing it. Someone like me, who is a beginner ukulele player, we're like, there's no way I'm playing the ukulele. I would disagree. Actually. Oh, you disagree? Interesting. Okay. I would, like, I mean, let's say we had you and I have a couple sessions of okay, like here's what you're going to be playing music in a ceremony, and we had a couple sessions specifically directed towards that. I would orient you on what you could do and how to do it. And I bet it would be beautiful. Okay. Hey, challenge accepted, dude. Yeah. That's that's awesome. I love that. It might be three notes. I would love that. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk off offline about that. For sure. So bring it back to the whole idea of deepening your relationship with sound with yeah. cattle like ayahuasca. So you said yeah. it opens up your receptivity, and as well as the left brain brain hemisphere integration to allow you yeah. to get into the notes even more. Yeah. How does that accelerate the learning process with your relationship with the sounds, with the instruments at all, if any? Me personally, or like in a more general way? You personally. I think it accelerated in a way of further refining my understanding of attention and how to work with it, becoming more aware of when the mind is drifting into other things and how to continually stay in that meditative, centered, attentive way, in the line way. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's the primary thing. Okay. 
So it doesn't necessarily accelerate or decelerate. It basically gives you more of a stressful, internal stressful situation for you to basically hold your ground more under stress while performing at a high level. Is that it? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's one aspect. And I think having like, also just having the reflection and maybe we're saying the same things from a different angle perhaps, but like having the, the observation, at least in my experience with II, there's a, another level of the observer consciousness that, that I feel connected with mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so that I can understand the processes that I'm doing in a different, in a more, in a different way. And then basically begin to work with that. I'm not a golfer, but if you went to a golf pro and they look at your swing and they help you basically make the adjustments or you watch yourself on video to make that adjustment, mm-hmm. sometimes of an internal awareness of that, like mm-hmm. a little bit more mm-hmm. aware of what is happening under the hood, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one analogy that I also share on this podcast a lot is in the beginning, before I had my personal experience, I thought this catalyst like ayahuasca would be an escape from reality. Huh. And I haven't had many ceremonies afterwards. I realized this is actually for me to get into hyper reality. It lifts the veil for me to, as you said, look under the hood of what's actually happening in reality, in my mind, in my body, in my heart, and then also the external reality as well. That's the way I articulate it. How would you define hyper-reality? Just basically lift the veil, remove the illusions that I have, and just actually see things as they are, and then see things from different perspectives versus having more of a filter and trying to discern. So here's a question with that, because I do think this is, and I'm not saying this with you in particular, but a potential shadow side of medicine work. Mm -hmm. How do we know we're in a hyper-reality and not just another filter that we are perceiving as a hyper-reality, sort of this inception-like experience that, oh, like now we're awake. Because I do think one of the, that I've actually seen a negative consequence of, in particular, ayahuasca. People Mm -hmm. can get into a belief pattern that might be out of touch with reality, whatever reality it might even be. I think, you know, that is, I think it's like, uh, what's the subjective and objective reality? Yeah. 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 Just a question of like, how do you personally discern sure. what, what is a, a hyper reality or not just another filter? Totally. Uh, great question. I, I love that you asked that question and uh, let's see the best I can answer or answer it. So let's first of all, look at objective reality versus subject reality. Yeah. Right? Murray Hittery, another beautiful musician. He is the founder of Mind Travel. He was one of the guests as well. So his whole thing is it's consensus reality versus subject reality, an experience of one versus there's some consensus about what is it that we're looking at. And your question was, how do I know if it's hyper reality versus just another filter that my mind makes up? I think ultimately it comes down to, I think that question to me is ultimately not that relevant. Ultimately, for me, it's a question of narrative, right? Do I have a narrative that empowers me to live the life that I want to live? In other words, am I, when I have this narrative, do I feel contracted or do mm-hmm. I feel expanded? If I have this narrative and I feel expanded, that to me is a new reality that actually empowers me. Ultimately, that's what I care about, sort of the effect rather than asking the validity of this lens. 
Does that make sense? Can you give it back to me what you heard? Yeah, no, it, that does make sense. <clears throat> Before I give it back to you, I think you are a, a special circumstance because you are in touch and connected. Like you, like there, there's a steady foundation within you that is steady. And what about the, let's say, person who might lean towards a more psychotic or, or schizophrenic break where their new reality feels very empowering and expansive, but it is has a negative consequence on their life or other people's lives. Like they might buy into it to such a degree that they could actually cause harm. But we just, how would you say like for another person who might not be so assur assured of themselves, how to potentially dif differentiate that? Yeah. So now we're the, coming to the question of sovereignty, right? Of what? Sovereignty. Uh huh. Right. I think ultimately, this is my personal belief that people choose to live the life that they want to live and if they live the life that they want to live in a way that actually empowers them then who am i to say hey that's not the right way to live sure so, so that's the way i so ultimately for them it, it's, it's more of a self-discernment of is it actually empowering me or does it is it disempowering me so if i recognize hey my mind's really fragile in a psychosis state then perhaps it's out of my own volition to not even touch powerful catalysts like an ayahuasca or whatever, or breath work, or even a Vipassana or things like that. Yeah. Do you remember when the, <clears throat> this is some years back, like when there's that transformational coach person who led that sweat lodge and like a couple of people died. It was like warrior training. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. This is probably back in 2009 ish, but here was a character like who was doing transformational work and I'm sure felt very empowered in doing it and encouraged people to stay in, in an environment that ultimately killed a number of people actually. It's, and I know I'm not asking you this question, but I guess this is just something that like has been rattling in my brain for a bit. In more extreme versions of transformational work, such as medicine work, such as like hard, like harder push to the limit, whether that's physical, mental, emotional. Again, running the deserts. Well, now he does it for himself. He also has those like ultra marathon type things where there's a lot of physical risk, right? Yes, but I guess what I'm saying is I'm looking at more facility, like people who basically do something, feel empowered as a facilitator perhaps. And that empowerment might be not fully cooked and potentially have neg negative consequences on another person. I actually don't see the, 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 the difference between, let's say, a desert ultra marathon versus because in that there's still a container, someone who is uh -huh. held responsible. There's a design for that. And then the person who participates in it, um, sure, one is a little bit more intimate. One is more bigger, greater environment. Ultimately, you're, yeah, e excellent question. Certainly, I'm not sure we can come up with the answer in, on our podcast conversations right now, who ultimately is responsible. I think both there's the sovereign self making a powerful choice. And then also the event producer who do everything that they can to articulate possible yeah. risk and here's the preparation da, da, da. and ultimately knowing that there's a waiver, you come in knowing that there's a, a risk of sorts, mentally, physically. Yeah. yeah. I think we could probably move into another thing, but what I'm talking about is how like is bringing up a shadow side that can create confusion in people that they think is real and they follow that confusion and it actually makes their life worse 
mm-hmm. and can potentially impact other people. Like just, and I'm not saying this is you by any means. In fact, I would say you're the opposite of that. But just, I think it is a conversation that needs to be addressed in, uh, when we begin to talk about things that do change our perception of reality, whatever reality might be, mm-hmm. there is a risk of people being confusing the confusing empowerment with another belief pattern, which if that, like I've seen it hinder people's lives. I've seen people take on a leadership role from a confused place. Mm-hmm. And now in the leadership role in their belief, mm-hmm. messing up other people's lives under it, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I don't think there's an answer we're trying to get to, but just there, I think, and I've had to do this with myself. If we bring it back to our conversation, be very, like I had to be very clear and discerning and continue to question, am I having what I would say is an objective experience or subjective experience? I think, and I think music is a great teacher for, we'll, we'll segue it back that two notes that are in tune, there's an objective reality to it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody hears that. Mm-hmm. Not everybody hears out of tune. So there is a sort of gap in their awareness that can be tuned to begin to perceive of what is objective and what is subjective. In doing so, I think it reveals how much of almost everything we're doing is subjective. And observing that then actually can create another form of, of transformation. I would say that music itself outside of medicine is a very safe and contained way to find that. I agree 100%. And I really appreciate this discussion. It's something certainly that I wish I have a more, here's a framework step-by-step, a very crisp answer. But I think that kind of misses the point because the whole point of this podcast conversation is an inquiry of not only within the boundary of our mastery, but also at the the brink. And perhaps Uh like, what does that mean? What does it look like? As space holders, as master teachers, how do we actually ensure that people choose empower state yes right? this actually helps them supports them towards the life they want to create rather than takes away and robs them from their own sovereignty yes so to your point bring back to music to yeah. your point about so there was a question here about are there specific notes or note combinations that actually would predictably get people to certain emotional state can you maybe talk about that or demonstrate that a bit so that way people can have an idea of now that you have a really deep understanding of notes and music and sound, yeah. can you share with us maybe some examples? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. <clears throat> so I think one way to begin to orient around it is thinking about music that appears in film. If anybody's had the opportunity to watch a film or at least a part of a film that was stripped of, of the musical soundtrack, especially in a, like a, an intense scene, a chase scene or a really dramatic scene, you'll notice something. It doesn't, it feels awkward. It doesn't feel right. A big part of what music does in film, in fact, I would say the thing it does is actually helps resonate and, and create emotional responses to the experience heightened and almost like triggers the emotional response to meet the acting and it, and it all blends together in a certain way. So we can understand that certain aspects of music have an effect on, on our internal experience of, of what we're feeling. It might, it, it spans way beyond just the emotional 
but it's something even deeper. In fact, I was part of, of this talk a couple of days ago that said, yeah, we could say that music creates emotion in the body or we experience it as emotion, but really it's just, it is what it is. And that's part of what makes music so beautiful. So we could begin to use words to certain sounds to approximate what it's doing within us, but it never really quite gets there. The, what does get there is the pure direct experience of it. But having said that, understanding with words and beginning to organize it does help us attune to this. So what I will say is that in music, how many different notes are there? Do you know the answer, CK, or, or would you guess in, in the whole universe of music? Dude, <laughs> random guess, 12? Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that, it's actually an informed guess. And, and we could even say, yes, that is. In our Western musical world, we have 12 distinct notes. Another way we could even look at notes is a frequency. So we could say, this is A440. We've heard that one probably heard A432 and all the stuff that goes with that. But basically what that means is this note here is vibrating. The string in this case is vibrating at 440 times exactly per second. So it's an objective thing. And uh, so there's 12 distinct notes that we categorize, and then there's octave of those notes. So that would be this note, which we would call an A, which is right now vibrating at 440 times a second. This is another A, but now vibrating at half of that at 220 a second. This is vibrating at 110. If we went down the other octave, which the guitar doesn't have, it'd be 55. If we went down another one, it'd be 27.5, 13.75, and so on, until we re, you know, just kept on reducing basically to infinity and conversely doubling it. So 440, there it is, 880, the next one would be 1660 or 1760. Yeah. And so on. So it's interesting because there's an infinite amount of replications of this note, quite literally a fractalization of frequency with 12 distinct resonant notes. One might say, what about here's one note, here's another note. How many notes are in those? Now on a piano, the answer is technically zero but conceptually infinite. So between this note and this note, you have all these little micro notes that are quite literally, if you were measuring a space of, of a foot, you could divide that into 12 inches, but in between every point, you could divide quite literally into an infinite, although we don't perceive of all of that level of acuity. So the short answer is there's an infinite amount of frequencies, but we organize them in our Western world into 12 individual notes. Every one of those 12 individual notes inherently, and one might argue this if they have a maybe perfect pitch, but individual notes, there's not so much of an emotional quality or relationship to. So if I play this note, or if I play this note, individually, this frequency or this frequency doesn't really call to much of an experience individually. When we combine the notes though, so let's just say this note and uh, let's say this note. Now together, now there's something that we could begin to qualify internally. And we can use a binary basically that ends up being a gradient of a binary, but harmonious or stable to dissonant or, or unstable. So we would, if we were to qualify these two notes, we could say those are very stable. They work really well together. 
in contrast, if I moved one of those notes, I guess you can't see my fingers, but here, we would call that dissonance unstable. Mm -hmm. So that's just like a good compare and contrast. So the emotional response or the internal response is primarily based with stability or instability in the gradient between those and all the little flavors that exist between that. It depends on how deep we want to go with like how this is. I'll just give the brief version of it. When we're hearing sound, it's the, the vibrations of, of the strings are creating wavelengths in the molecules that are replica or a continuation even of the string vibrating. That's meeting our skin, our ears, the cilia, the hairs in the ears, vibrating those in the same wave pattern, which is then of, goes into the liquid in our ears, which then goes into electronical signal, all still vibrating at the same pattern in our nervous system and God knows what else, neural networks and all the types of things. So the point of that is notes vibrating together create a shape. And some shapes are more symmetrical, which we experience as balanced. And some shapes are more asymmetrical, which we experience as dissonance. And our internal vibrations or nervous system response or neural networks are vibrating in that same relationship. So basically it's an analog or a continuation of that. So we're literally feeling these vibrations, which changes our internal state. If we are hearing or listening notes or combinations, such as this, then music, will, we call this a perfect fifth. We don't need to get into the technicalities, but we could call that a perfect fifth. This is a very stable relationship. There's two stable relationships primarily, let's say the octave, which is the doubling of the notes, which is basically just a fractal or a replica. And then the first one that's differentiated would be this perfect fifth, which is very stable. Mm -hmm. So in listening to these notes together, it is beginning to stabilize our internal sense because mm -hmm. literally the, that vibrational pattern is we're eating in a way where, you know, and conversely, if we partake in dissonance enough, it's destabilizing our system. So different note relationships have that effect on us. <clears throat> the ability that we're able to be really present with it is how we can feel it deeper. So let's say like the person who's not necessarily very musically attuned, maybe they hear it, they like it, but there's even people that, that can, yeah, can give or take music. Chances are, they're not really experiencing what this is doing. They're hearing it, but they're not really experiencing it. Versus the, the trained musician, let's say, learns to hear and feel this so deeply that they have such a connection to it that they're, they're inside. And I think like when we see musicians and we get intoxicated by it, part of it, I think, is how deep they are internally. They're mm. going somewhere and they're expressing, but mm. they're not externally oriented. They're so deep inside. And what I found personally is where they are inside or where we are is in the experience of these notes, which mm. has so much to tell us the deeper that we listen to it. Mm. So basically different note combinations have that uh, effect on us. And part of what I would say is like painting with sound as a musician or helping create a different emotional internal atmosphere is playing around with those colors in a way that, that aligns us to some of those notes. I call this tuning into harmony. And we could even just metaphorically say, oftentimes, maybe a lot of us, especially if we're eating a lot of dissonant things, whether that's food or news or whatever it is, begin to get tuned. That life seems like the music of their life feels like this. 
or it feels maybe really sharp, you know, like very fast. And, and yeah, all. I, I just had a nervous reaction. Yes. Seeming these sounds. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's doing. It's literally stimulating your nervous system in response. So quite literally using sound, the notes that help us tune into harmony and to balance at a tempo that helps our nervous system react, relax because faster tempos are more heightened alert sense like a panic attack is a very fast internal tempo. If a tiger all of a sudden enters the room, chances are our nervous system will be like, okay, let's chill. So there, there's a utility to a very fast heightened nervous system. Mm. Uh, it's, very, it's very expensive energetically. And so basically beginning to work at slower tempos helps reset the brain waves in the nervous system to a place of homeostasis and, re and relaxation which kind of tells our whole system it's it's okay right now versus which says it's not okay right now. Now there are, there's faster, more dissonant music that people love because they might love that feeling of being on edge. And, and I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with it. I would look at it from a bit of a medical standpoint and say, is that really serving? And you might want to use different types of music and different sound flavors and tempos in different parts of the day to serve what's necessary at that point. Yeah. If you want to get in a productive mode, really long tones might not necessarily organize your brain waves to go into more action. It's why people take Adderall because it actually speeds up the brain waves. So you might want to find certain tempos that are still healthy that begin to regulate things, but also move them forward a little bit rather than just like tuning into this like floaty long moment. Um, mm. So uh, a few ideas came to mind. As a technologist, I love to just have a library or a tool belt, a, a tool set that I can just point and listen to it over and over again. But I don't actually know there's any kind of library other than play my own instrument. Mm -hmm. But as someone who's a beginner who don't understand any of this, I can duplicate basically what you just demonstrated. Are there musical libraries basically say, hey, if you want to feel stable, play this list. If you want to feel dissonant or... Yeah, you know, yeah, there are. There's been some different technological programs that have organized music in that way. I bet you could even find it on, on Spotify, different playlists. Mm. Uh, there's, there's also, I don't remember the exact name of it, but it's something like, it's it's the name itself. Let me see if I can look it up real quick. It unfortunately... So while you look, let me say this. Yeah. The ones that I found are complicated musics because complication people the mind likes lots of different flavors but what i'm looking for personally is two notes three notes the simplicity yeah what you describe what you demonstrated not the complicated you know piece, yeah. piano music all over the place type stuff yeah offhand i'm not sure okay so this thing it's called it's mynoise.net mm -hmm. this person has put together all these different noise he calls noise gener sound generators. I wish it wasn't noise because noise has a, has a negative connotation in my mind versus anyway. And it has a whole lot of different binaural beats. And, and it's this beautiful thing. You'll love it, man, because you could actually mix in different things that you want to play. Like it, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's an amazing tool. As far as some of my earlier music that, I, that I've released, which was music for yoga, mm -hmm. is basically some of that more like sim simple approach to it. Mm -hmm. I, I'd imagine some sort of like sound bath experiences with crystal bowls and things that are more slow and intentional. But I think as you ask that, what comes to mind is there's probably a need 
for more of it and i don't know how much of it exists hey man telling you there's the, the 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 there's a group of us who is looking for the simple not the fancy because to me it's less about the like a buffet of, I, i don't need a full buffet i just want yes to get me to some physiological emotional state and then and also as a way to train myself to deepen my own appreciation and a relationship with sound which i would say as a listener yes as a participant in doing the process yourself it's got to be i don't know what x return is but many more like listening to someone to me play these two notes over and over in a meditative way versus you figuring out or finding out or learning how to do that yourself it the the returns are much greater if you become the self generator of it and i think that's a big part of what i'm sharing i wanted to let's see is there anything else that i wanted to say about this let's actually move to more of a mrs mis, more esoteric stuff more more mm. mysticism type things because cool. you made some I thought it was really powerful, profound statements, really. You had said mysticism is the exploration of the mystery. So say a little bit more about that. Like, why do you even care to study that? And then we can go from there. One of the things I heard Robert say that really impacted me, Robert Fripp, that, let me see how to recall it as close to what he said, that to mastery comes from the root word of master, I'm paraphrasing, which is masculine. And there's no sort of in our vernacular, the feminine counterpoint to it, but maybe mystery could be that if we look at it, so mm. we have mastery and mystery mm. in a way. And I think where people oftentimes go wrong, myself included, my previous ages, trying to master the mystery mm. where you can't master the mystery, first of all, and, and the mystery isn't to be mastered. And, but mysticism would be the exploration of the mystery, I would say. So what is the mystery in life? It's, I mean, it could rant all of it in a way is what is reality? What, what is spirituality? What is spirit? What is, what is God? How do rituals change our, our internal space, soul, all these types of things. So I found interest in exploring less so now, honestly, but what's going on and at a level that seemingly science can't touch or answer or hasn't yet or even the mind, you know, something deeper. Like when I feel something that one might call divinity or the divine experience or my soul, what is that thing? And what are these different traditions that have formed around that? Kabbalah has been a big part of my study. Sufism to some degree, specifically via Hazrat Inat Khan, who wrote amazing books, The Mysticism of Sound and Music, that really explored this relationship that we could feel and sense and words might become very poetic and lead us to it, but never really get us there. It, I guess from a very young age, I've been a seeker and, and very curious to what is going on. Like something top level societal interaction never felt like the real stuff to me. Yeah. Identities, occupations, like I guess egoic relationship to life in the world. Mm -hmm. From a very young age, just was like, no, that that's not it. And maybe my experiences with music and my just love for music and musicians and what that seems to be mm -hmm. that inquiry. And I think part of it, the mysticism of literally of sound and music is like beyond all the vibrations, all the stuff we just talked about in the neural networks and this and that, like, what the fuck? Like, how is it that we've had that music is here? What is that even like beyond just like the intellectual approach? I'll give a quick 
kind of like intrigue that I've had that seems to give an example of this. It's the relationship to music as an intelligence that goes beyond this world, let's say. So if we think about music as a means to help organize consciousness, organize people and evolve it, and not just from a scientific standpoint, but sort of from this understanding of it's a consciousness entering in our world to guide us somewhere. So mm-hmm. pre-verbal humans, whatever those things might have been, they're, they're together in small little groups. Somebody's hunting, they capture something, they find some food, they want to call the group together. They don't know how to do it because they don't have words to use for it. So maybe they make a sound. There's lots of sounds in the environment. So maybe they pick up a log in a log and smack it together. That's just a singular sound. And that might engage the attention of awareness. Oh, something just happened. Mm. I don't know what it is. It could be random. Let's say there's two. That's beginning to become a pattern that engages the awareness even deeper Mm -hmm. into, oh, something that's more than just something random, but it still might be random. But I'm a little bit more called to the sound. Then you have a three pattern. Now we have a pattern. Mm. Chances of that being random are highly unlikely compared to it being intentional. That organizes the mind a little bit more into seeking for that. Now people are coming together. Now maybe they're participating together. That's bringing them into synchrony. Then maybe that uh, helps them survive a little bit better. And now they're humming some sounds and then they find some words to the sounds. And now they're encoding the history into songs and being able to transfer information from one generation to the other before you could write things down through songs. And that helps people exist better and function better and evolve. As they evolve better, the music becomes more complex because their consciousness is becoming more complex. Mm. And eventually they, they discover the different notes, Pythagoras, for example, and harmonies and the math of it. And then eventually that helps them organize their mind to come to a, another level of being. Then you begin to have more elaborate music and harmony, classical music, complexities of that continues to evolve the brain brings people together, then you eventually have like rock and roll and electronic music, which is very precise and gets into very small frequency development and relationships, which is way more complex than any other music has been in the history of humanity, which also now is bringing people together in a certain way and bringing the brain together. So we could look at all that from just an anthropological standpoint, but we could also look at that from a mystical standpoint of consciousness has guided us along the way to develop using music as this path um, that is curious to me and a mystery that i don't have the answers for but there's something deep in in the exploration of it yeah so someone who is an engineer trained right music to me for a long time was just a form of passive entertainment Mm -hmm. it wasn't until plant medicine ceremony then i was like oh there's so much more beyond what I thought I heard, because all I would, all I did was I hear the notes, but I didn't, I didn't really listen. I didn't really internalize. Yeah. I didn't really reflect on the internal basis. And and that actually reminds me of the Tao Te Ching. The opening line is, "If you can articulate the Tao, it's not the eternal Tao." <laughs> However, poetry and music gets closer. Yes, you can actually feel the in between spaces as well as the notes actually receive the wisdom you know in the sounds that you beautifully articulated so yeah thank you for sharing that so one thing that you said is everything is vibration and music is the 
is a tool that actually ultimately unites everyone. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like how yeah. you about the world through the lens of a vibration and how you use this powerful tool that access that, that eternal thought, a Tao. That yeah. And I think this is where the mystics of the ancient times, specifically the rishis in the yoga texts, Kabbalists, Sufi, even Christian, not like Gnostics to some degree in other traditions understood everything as this vibratory universe, specifically in the yogic mysticism, like authentic Tantra and which just to differentiate is not Neo-Tantra. Actually, I don't know the difference. Can you say more about that? <laughs> yes. Neo-Tantra is like the modernization of like Osho is, for example, one of the founders of what we call Neo-Tantra. Most mm -hmm. people, when they hear the word Tantra, they think sex. Authentic Tantra, while there is an aspect of that, that is not, it goes much deeper than that. It's like getting into mantra and internal alchemy and all these types of things. There's there, the neo-tantric movement is basically, for lack of a better word, a bastardization of the word and the concept of uniting polarities completely like focused in on intimacy and all that. And most of stuff that's- Sorry, can you back up two sentences? Sure. Ask me one more time. So say that again, one more time, please. Sure. The, the neo-tantra, the differentiation. Yeah, yeah. And basically, it's pretty much a bastardization of the concept. One of the main concepts of, of authentic tantra is polarities. Mm -hmm. uh, Shakti, masculine, feminine, mm -hmm. outer, and the merging of the two. So neo-tantra was like, oh, like sex is doing that. Like sexual kind of a thing. Yeah, which is a part of authentic tantra, but it's not the primary focus. It's neo-tantra made it all about that. And pretty much made up a bunch of practices and called it Tantra that some of them may have some connection to the authentic practices. Most don't. And mm. most are basically this thing, which I don't want to say is a, is negative because I think it does, it can really be helpful for people, but mm. just to differentiate what, when, when I am speaking about Tantra, it's actually the authentic texts and um, not what we would consider Neo-Tantra. Mm. So anyway, mystics understood everything as a vibrational thing. The universe itself is a vi vibrational entity. Mm. And um, this is, I think, as far as my understanding of, of current day physics is where their science is getting to as well. Like that string theory and everything is these vibrational patterns. I mean, that at the subatomic level, we find vibration. We find electrons spinning and the whole deal of creating molecules, which mm. are not when we zoom in, are not a static thing, but actually in movement. Mm -hmm. And that creates crystallization that we would call matter, which seems very stable and not moving. But if we zoomed in, we would see that there is movement. And if we zoom out into the more macro universe, we see there's movement as well. We're on a planet that is moving around a star that's also in motion. And the, the galaxy, the Milky Way is spiraling in movement. So as far as our observation, we could see both the macro and the micro as movement being a constant, although movement can coalesce into forms of stability, which is where I see music is this etheric thing that it does. It coalesces stability to some degree with movement. Mm -hmm. So when those notes are vibrating in relationship that's stable, it's almost like we have a musical molecule in a way mm -hmm. and, and we could build upon that. And then there's levels of dissonance. Just in, in chemistry, we break apart molecules. I don't know chemistry, but I think that's what they do. Or if you transform th things from one state into another, 
mm-hmm. changing things up. And there's an active dissonance in that movement or changing the tempo where it becomes unstable. When you heat up water, you're literally changing the tempo of water, temperature, temperature mm-hmm. is the root of it, where those molecules are getting faster and faster, where they begin to release their matter form or become uh, gas at that point. Versus mm-hmm. when you slow down the tempo of water, i.e. make it colder, temperature, it begins to crystallize into literal crystals, into ice crystals. So there's a play of, of balance and change and all this type of things, which I think music is a beautiful map to all of that, basically. That's one of the aspects of it. Yeah, no, this is great. I really appreciate that. So if you look at the, the fractal nature of really from the, from the molecules to human beings, to family units, to, to communities, to societies and the whole planet and then universal. So you can go all the way up, all the way down. Yeah. So how are you, from your perspective, because you share part of your yoga of sound is to use sound as a way to self-regulate yes. the self. And so let's actually inquire further beyond the self, how do you see sound slash music as a way to access the consciousness of, again, oneself, as well as the group, as well as the family unit and so on, expansion from that? Yeah, I think the harmony of of oneself as the, the primary thing. As a musician to play something that is harmonious, and I'm not necessarily just talking about harmonious sounds, but let's say stable, even if it's dissonant, there's there's a there's a way to do that that is stable or it's further away harder to hear that as music versus something that has more regu- regulation to it mm-hmm. so in order for a musician to begin to invoke let's say the presence of music there's a necessity of inner regulation that's necessary that mm-hmm. begins with the individual when two or more people do that together something greater occurs. A band playing together in sync together creates something that's the sum is larger than, than the parts. Something greater comes from that. In doing so, now you have, let's say, three or four people internally synced up to themselves and their process and this intelligence of music and with each other who are all doing that as well. So there's kind of these greater levels of feedback loop of individual alignment and awareness of alignment with music and specifically time as let's say that one of the etheric grids or the intangible grids within all that's coalescing and creating something that attracts humans. It, it, when a human hears, let's say a group of four people or 40 doing that, I think it, it helped. We resonate it. We feel it something. It aligns the listener as well, especially if they're listening deeper. So the deeper that they're able to listen, the more internal alignment they're getting dependent on how aligned those people are. Just a great example. And when I speak of genres, I don't speak of them in any negative term. Just look mm-hmm. at the function of it. Mm-hmm. Look at the function of punk music on the being. Punk is a, it's a, it's an answer to too much order. Let's say when punk music came, came out. It's, and it was ordered disorder. And it creates ordered disorder. If you even look at the fashion of punk music, the, the asymmetries of the thing and the spikes and like it has this sort of thing. And, and if you looked at, at people slam dancing, for example, you see quite literally this violence 
being generated by the music, this aggression, because the music is people are receiving the aggression of the people and they're expressing it. I'm not saying that's good or bad. That's just doing what that is. Sometimes it could be cathartic. If you look at other music that might help people come into a level of love together, for example, music that is expressing love, the musician is tuning into the frequency of love or the experience of it. And then the listener feels that. So the listener sort of is receiving this combination, musician, human filters, music as a transcendental type of thing. Anyway, it generates group, not only individual coalescence, but group coalescence. So two people can dance together in rhythm. Now you're having two people syncing up their internal rhythms, their heartbeat, their breath, their neural patterns. And when that happens, I think we experience something that feels more of a unity than, than a dissonance. When people begin to resonate together, become entrained together, there, there's a sense of, of merging that I don't know why it is, but we seem to like it as humans. And it seems that the more we do that, the more we exist in peace. And the more we are in different rhythms or notes or whatever, the more potential for clash. Sometimes there could be beautiful opposites track, but sometimes there can be clash. So I think part of the function of, of music as a mysticism is that it's this intelligence that's helping people organize into greater synchrony as humans to recognize a unity and hopefully bring more peace in, in, into the world, which I think we could actually see that it's done even. Oh, let's look at, let's look at the music that came through the sixties, for example. So you could see the music from the forties or fifties, like, like when rock and roll began it, rock and roll shook things up, shake it up, baby. Like it, and even the patterns are actually a little bit asynchronous to heartbeat that mm. kind of alerts and stimulates the nervous system. I think humanity needed that. We're just coming off of uh, our second world war where we dropped the most destructive bombs that have ever been developed in humanity. Real serious shit at that point. The, like the impact of war all of a sudden was magnified to a degree that humanity had never felt before. And and I think something needed to change and something did change. Like after that, I feel like part of the music was to help wake people up out of a certain trance in a way of differences and come into alignment for some degree. And then you have it kind of culminating, at least in my mind, in, in Woodstock, where you have half a million people or so, no fights, everyone coming together to listen to a music that seems to be channeled from something more than just, and this is a pre-rock star even, at least the commodification of the music industry. But this is people who were called to this music. Jimi Hendrix, he wasn't trying to be something. That's who he was. Mm -hmm. This was coming through him. And it brought people together into a different level of consciousness. So I feel like that movement changed the course of humanity in a way. And the sort of movement of music into a carrier of, of love and harmony and coming from that place has seeded that continues to happen today. Uh, a different level of consciousness that is looking towards agreements and commonalities rather than being stuck in you're that I'm um, this, you're different than, and you're bad. Therefore. So I have a two part question, right? So the first part question is, do you feel that the popular music of the time is a direct reflection of the consciousness of the collective whole? So that's the first yeah. part question. It's a big question, but not that's right. Second part of the question is, I don't know if you ever watched Elizabeth Gilbert's TED talk. She talked about the concept of 
a muse, being a channel, a conduit and having a muse, you know, one with an, an, an or a genius visit her. And if she's not ready as the conduit a vessel, she would then visit another writer. So she shared an example between Michael Jackson and Prince as an example. And Prince was, or Michael Jackson would say, Hey, if I don't write this song, Prince is going to write it. The similar uh -huh. concept, right? Yeah. So to know your thoughts about, let me recap the question. Do you feel like the music, popular music at the time is a direct reflection of our consciousness and to the whole idea of having been a conduit, a vessel for the muse to come visit? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely a reflection of the consciousness and the zeitgeist at the moment. And it also seems to be something of the future calling us forward to it. A future what? The future calling us forward to it. Mm -hmm. That there's something about the current, generally, the current music times, and I think it's expedited now, especially with technology and the sort of the digital part of the aspect, which has really changed uh, a lot of parts about music. But there's something when I listen to some music, I'm like, shit, this is the future, mm. even though it's right now. But it, it's like mm. calling us, it's calling us forward into something. Mm. I think that's part of the benevolence and, and the intelligence of music is that it's organizing us into a more uh, harmonious, complex future moment, basically. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's more of a, I think you said it beautifully, calling us forth. Yeah. Yeah. And a reflection of the moment. And different musics are different reflections and, and serve different purposes. When hip hop first evolved, I mean, that was a music that was necessary for a culture to express pain mm. and bring awareness to injustice. And, 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 and I think that music was, was born from that. I think it's changed into something else now. It definitely has. There's a great Netflix uh, series, The Evolution of Hip Hop, that really is well done and goes from the disco, the merging of disco. Anyway, some music can be different things, but I think it's always a reflection of the moment and generally guiding into the future. Potentially, there's some destructive music, I would say as well, or music that has some destructive consequences, just sonically and vibrationally and mentally and mindset and all, all of that. Second question, the I don't think it quite works like that. If I don't get it, somebody else, I don't know, but it doesn't, that doesn't make sense to my own personal model of how the whole thing works. Okay. Looking at the as a student of vibrations, as a teacher, as a musician, as someone who actually creates and produce music as a trainer of other people who getting into music and sound, what, uh, and then now we're just hypothesizing here. Yeah. Well, have we, have we been all along? Yeah. In the very uh, divided world that we are in today, what, what kind of music is yearning to be born brought into the world? Boy, is the world divided? I, I hadn't noticed. Polarized. Now that's a really great question. One of the things I really love about right now is the diversity of artistry that's available and continuing to evolve. As a musician, I don't love Spotify's royalty payment model because it, it it is not so equitable. As a lover of music, I love Spotify mm. because it is not only gives me the listener access to so much music, but there's also like the AI generative. It figures out what I like, and I don't have a I don't have a defined taste. It's not like I like blues, and it sends me a bunch of blues. I like weird, undefinable things, and somehow it finds new artists to send me that I really love. Mm. So I think there is the beauty of the diversification of music right now is amazing because I think there's more room than ever for an artist 
to share their unique voice that touches people and the less need to have a mass audience. Mm. Mass audiences were more necessary in the past because it didn't make sense to print any less than X amount of albums or CDs because there was just like hard cost to doing it. It didn't make sense to tour to unless there's X amount of people. So you needed a certain level of foundation, critical mass to make it sustainable. That's not the case now. It's like the, I forgot who wrote that thing, but the thousand true fans, like Kevin Kelly. Yeah. Just that model. So somebody like myself who I haven't released any music recently, but my music that I've released for yoga, there's a consistent amount of listens that blows my mind that it happens that wouldn't have happened in the eighties. That many people buying the CD, finding the CD, it just wouldn't have happened. But now like the distribution model has become decentralized. So I think where, I don't know what type of music it is. I think it's more of perhaps the diversity of music that becomes available to speak to different people who need to hear different messages in a certain way. Mm. And there's sort of, as we, as humanity become more diverse individuals, and I think that's part of what is part of the divide in a way is like a growing pains of more uniqueness and both of sides of the division, I think are freaked out by it in a way mm -hmm. you've got like the conservatives freaked out by people who uh, are playing with gender fluidity and, and different and different aspects of identity. And then you've got people on the left freaked out by people who are playing with different levels of sovereignty and exploring what does freedom really mean and what is civilian right versus government. Anyway, I, I think there's like depth. I think part of it is new versions of, of freedom that people are exploring that can create a dissonance from different perspectives. And I think maybe the healing of it is both embracing uh, that we're growing into greater levels of diversity and that the music offers that for different people and maybe guides us to embracing that rather than that we could have a harmony of diversity rather mm -hmm. than a homogeny of, of unity. Yeah. So are there any tools or, so in my mind, I'm a student of technology. Yeah. I like mental models and frameworks and yes, me too. technologies as well. And I'm, on, I'm an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur. So what are some of the up and coming tools that you've come across that you feel is more conducive, empowering for you to really help bring your, your DAO to others? Who, me um, personally or more? Yeah. Through your lens, what have you observed that you're excited about? Oh, this particular technology, this particular tool that empowers artists like you to make the kind of difference and impact that you want to make. Yeah. I haven't seen anything new that I feel, well, okay. We could look at it in three levels, I think. So there's the generate, there's a generation generating music. Mm -hmm. So that would be the, I have some sort of education thing, which I think zoom online trainings is amazing because it, we, we continue to decentralize that like the need for that i think i see kids i think kids learning from youtube videos uh, like just the amount of information that's available to learn from is greater than ever and therefore i think it's expediting process of learning mm -hmm. uh, there's a vhs tapes you could order for 50 bucks of the guitar player and that was it was that or your local teacher now you have the world available so i think decentralization of education is huge and helping people learn music. I think as programs get simpler, like Ableton Live, for example, GarageBand is a starter program. 
people have the experience of beginning to work with a recorded medium of music and alter it and change it in a way that is makes music makes making music easier the process of actually creating it at least like at the functional level not the creative level but at least at the technical level yeah, and then mechanical level yep the mechanical level yeah and then the education to do that along with that and then um, decentralized distribution models that are ai driven to begin to figure out what people like and give them music that they like that inspires them to create more like i get inspired by the music i hear mm -hmm. and then ai would i'm sorry virtual reality would, in ar would be the next step that i have some visions i i don't feel ready to speak publicly on it because i would like to develop them but I think beginning to see and experience music in the fourth dimension, which we don't normally do music it, when music is written notation, it's two dimensional and it's binary and it's very abstract from like dots on a paper with lines means absolutely nothing. We understand the representation of what it means. And we learn that it's a very abstract and laborious model that has been functional, but with the advent of depth and movement, we actually can begin to engage with music in an AR or VR way that music is more akin to how music really is. I think Guitar Hero is is a, pro, a primitive version of that where mm. you're moving through time while you're playing. Well, that's what you're doing when you're playing. So mm. to have visual representation, especially in a, a three and fourth dimensional representation, I think will begin to expand a lot of things. Mm. Yeah, actually, what comes to mind is the VR meditation app called Trip. Essentially, uh -huh. uh, coming your way, you essentially can visualize meditation, which mm -hmm. is paradoxical because the yeah. whole point of meditation is to go inward, not yeah. to look at the VR world. Yeah. But, but I digress. Another idea came to mind as you were speaking is I don't know if you played this game before. I don't know the name of the game. Essentially, you have two knives and things are coming your way. You're slicing them. And mm -hmm. you, so you can actually use that to create music as a possibility. I'm not a gamer, but that's just something yeah. I can my. Yeah, I haven't seen that game either. But yeah, music is a play of space and time. Yeah. So I think, I think what's what actually would be really interesting as an exploration, you know, we'll have to have a, come up with a solution right now. It's not just the creative aspect of it, because we, we have more channel of distribution, yes, but I think fundamentally, what could be really interesting is thinking about how artists can collaborate with each other, yeah. more AI suggested a way, hey, if you like Josh's music, you might like CK's music, mm -hmm. Josh and CK, you guys should work together, have a collaboration, so you can cross-pollinate your audience, so that way, you have more and more of that moat, right? Yeah. You know, the true fans grows accordingly. So that way you're not dependent on a distribution channel like Spotify as a way to help support and monetize your lifestyle as a creator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just a thought. I don't have a, a solution, but that's something I think would be really interesting as yeah. a way to seamlessly collaborate with other similar audiences. So then you can grow your audience of course. Yeah, I think why well, like the idea of like AI driven by taste to bring collaborators together, I, I think that's pretty brilliant. It hasn't been done before. I had the idea some years back of like of a dating app that was based on your Spotify listens. Because I have I have this hypothesis. If you have the same taste of music, chances are you'll get along. 
whether it's a romantic connection, I don't know, but there's some, there's, I think chances are you'll get along. Yeah. So guys, if you're listening, Hey, we, we just offer you some brilliant ideas. Check it out. Let us know. Cut us in on the founder stock. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last question. I, I want to be super respectful of your time. Last question is this. Yes. So thinking back on what young Josh, what he was like, struggling with, dealing with, what would be, we said a lot of different things and tactics and frameworks throughout this entire conversation. What would be like the one thing, if the young Josh can hear what you're about to share, it would really help him. Yeah. Can I ask what, like how young? At the beginning part of his entrepreneurial career, where, where he's facing self-doubt, where okay. he's facing, what should I do? Go to the left or go to the right or reinventing myself. Yeah. As a musician to entrepreneur, what would you say to the young Josh listening? I would say to allow both time and space to explore and to do your best to mitigate stress, anxious, panic responses along the way. To invest equal time into in, tuning into intuition and clearing distractions and static and noise that get in the way. So in parallel with action, also internal work and making sure that, that the internal world is being tuned in and nourished to work towards a lower valuation than a higher valuation. I, I think. What does that mean? I didn't understand that. We all want the big ticket item that scales so that we can have the, the maximum ROI. I think, yeah, like to focus rather than like impressive maximum ROI, what is lowest level sustainable ROI first mm -hmm. and tune into that rather than trying to just to the six or seven figure a year thing right off the bat, the big launch. Let's work on the sustainable ROI that feels good. It feels in alignment with you. If you're getting caught up in technical stuff and that is losing the engagement, find a simpler way to do it mm. specifically rather than trying to figure out the whole sequence of autoresponders and the thing and the click funnels and the thing and the thing, if that is not working, is there an easier way? If it takes more manual labor than automation, maybe that's okay. Mm. So we're again, rather than trying to just scale ROI time, money, return everything from the get go, like, like just get it functional and proof of concept and not just proof of concept from a sales and a monetary way, but from a way that what you're offering is working. So focus in on, on the actuality of the product, for lack of a better word, the offering, the process that you are trading for money, work on that and trust that when that's developed and that's coming from a place of value and support for other people, then the return will begin to happen naturally. And then the scale will also begin to happen as a natural reflection of that. Mm. Those are the things I would say. Thank you so much, Josh. Let me take a moment to really acknowledge you. I so appreciate you as a friend, as a colleague, as a teacher, as a mentor, and everything that you stand for and, and what you do. In this conversation, you share very generously with your journey of someone who desires to be a musician, who is super heady to being a master teacher. You share with us also your teaching philosophy, what makes a great teacher and not so great teacher, right? 
you share with us as also on your philosophy around how music is a tool to access the mystery of the universe. Mm -hmm. A little bit about that too, as well. So we went on a lot of different grounds. And I think for younger CK or Josh or anyone who is starting their career, reinventing themselves, your last tip was definitely on point about how to actually focus on the atomic unit of the offer versus getting to all the the fancy automation tools, the models and the funnels and all that stuff. So that way people can continue to give their gift, mm -hmm. make the kind of starting to make the kind of difference they want to make. So thank you so much for the way you show up on our conversation. Yeah. Thank you, CK. And I'll take a moment to acknowledge you, which is, th this is really delightful, a real beautiful experience. You hold a wonderful space of good questions and inquiry and your ability to listen brings forward things but like, in music, the depth of the listener will bring the musician out. And that could be the individual listener and musician or the audience. So you, I found just through this, an ability to find uh, an expression that oftentimes is not so available with me, or I have the opportunity to open that channel. So I really appreciate you as a facilitator to open that. And it's a real gift. And um, thank you. I see... I see that gift expanding and, and it benefits a lot of people. So thank you for holding the space and the invitation. I really appreciate you.